Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. You can also check out my Audible on Amazon about The Black Athlete. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness, The Institute of the Black World, and the Political Activism in the 1970s, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou. Uh, the world has uh, erupted with protest and uh, activism since the end of the last dance uh, in, in wake of George Floyd's uh, horrific murder. Uh, on uh, video in Minneapolis. And so to, d- to discuss the sporting kind of reaction and world uh, around both policing as well as the reaction from the sports world, uh, we are, are fortunate this evening to have two, two illustrious guests. Carl two? Sud- yeah, two. Uh, Carl Sudler has made his return. Uh, he is the author of Presumed Criminal. And he is an assistant professor at Emory University. And for the first time on the podcast, my friend, my ally, my former professor, I think. I don't think so. I don't know if you were there when I was there. (laughs) Uh, Such a long time ago. Hassan Jeffries from The Ohio State University, associate professor of history. Uh, Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be with y'all. Yeah. Wait, wait, time out. Hassan, Hassan, you got to plug your book real quick because we didn't get that plug. Oh. Tell us about the book. Oh, oh, Understanding and Teaching the Civil Rights Movement. So that just dropped, University of Wisconsin. Um, good overview, good pedagogical um, uh, tips and tools. So anyone who's teaching civil rights and wants to have a better understanding of it, there you go. Hassan, also uh, tell us real quick about your um uh, the, what is it? The podcast initiative, teaching hard history. Right. So there's two things. So there's the podcast, um, teaching hard history. Um, we did two seasons, just wrapped up the second season on American slavery through teaching tolerance, Southern Poverty Law Center. And then we're going to start recording a third season, uh, probably this fall, which will focus on civil rights movement. Uh, so we're, 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 we're keeping the, trying to reach the masses just like y'all. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So it's good. Then we got the right guests to talk about uh, these issues. And so I think today uh, we want to start with Carl, whose work uh, addresses both uh, policing and uh, its its approach to young folks, especially young urban folks in New York and black folks. And so, Carl, give us a kind of a little overview about what you have seen regarding specifically the George Floyd uh, uh, incident that his murder as well as the kind of re, the police reaction and response that we've seen over the last, I don't know, five nights uh, in, in, in all 50 states, uh, as well as countries across the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, it's been interesting to watch, right? It's been interesting to follow. And many folks have started really drawing, making these broader comparisons, right, to other years of rebellion in our country's history. And a part of why is because you know, anti-Black racism lies at the center of our country's DNA, right? And we've yet to adequately address this. And so for many folks, we, we're, we're seeing comparisons to 1919, or 1943, or 1960s, or 1992, when we, um, 
you know, have various uprisings around this country. But um, all the, what these things have in common is that all of these uprisings have been direct responses to systems of discrimination, segregation, and police brutality. You know, uh, Max Felker Cantor wrote an op-ed in Washington Post that came out the other day that pointed out, you know, in the 1960s, really from 1963 to 72, there were 750 revolts in nearly 525 cities, and nearly all of them were sparked by an episode of police abuse or police harassment. Um, you know, this includes Harlem in 64, Watts in 65, Newark and Detroit in 67. And, you know, in that moment, we missed so many opportunities to address so the root causes of these uprisings. And so for, for a lot of folks, we're, we're in this 2020 moment where it's like, here we go again. That's a, that's, that's a, a great historical context. Uh, so one of the things, I guess, immediately that has come out of this, this uh, discussion is this question of police reform or police reforms in the plural sense. And for our listeners, I think there's a it's an interesting moment, right? Because one of the things that we've seen from the sports world is this discussion about how can we uh, have police reforms. And uh, we're reminded, we talked about this last week uh, um, when we had Sam Shepard on, Lou and I, about how Michael Jordan had given, he both sides the issue uh, a few years ago where he gave money to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and basically he gave uh, like a million dollars to a police fund uh, as well. And yeah, and so one of the things that I've been seeing is this really interesting discussion regarding, uh, you know, whether there are particular reforms that can be done or even this this idea that has taken root that comes out of black studies, which is where we all kind of teach, is this notion of, of abolition of the police force. Um, can you speak on a little bit about what the 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 parameters of each of those kind of pr- approaches to to change? Yeah, certainly. Um you know, the the obvious response is that, quote unquote, justice needs to be served, right? And for many, that was, you know, some of those steps were taken this week when uh, the charges were up to a second degree murder uh, and, and the arresting three and the other three officers were arrested. And there's something to be said about policy reform, uh, but many abolitionists, and I would include myself, you know, do do look at these reforms as lip service. And it's not because we don't believe in them. It's just that we've been fed so many similar reforms over and over again. You know, I, I, I dug out the, uh, because I'm, I guess, kind of nerdy, right? But I, but I dug out the Kerner Commission, right, to really kind of dive into it. And the Kerner Commission, uh, you know, 1968, direct response to uprisings in the 60s. And when you when you look at the language that's being employed in the Kerner Commission about how to kind of fix this problem and that you know to kind of you know patch up these frustrations with the police and the black community, um, we see so many of the same conversations today with reform, and and I think that's why so many abolitionist circles are growing. Um, why so many a- ideas around abolition are formulating. And, you know, for what it's worth, I, you know, I, I just want to say for the record, abol- abolition isn't necessarily a total removal of the police force or a total removal of 
you know, prison spaces, right? Abolition is, you know, and depending on who you talk to, right, it's largely driven in the idea of abolishing the conditions that require this police presence or these prison spaces in the first place, right? So it's, it's, it's a lot of it's driven in a reallocation of resources and a reallocation of funds. And so a lot of what we see now is calls for defunding the police or divesting from the police. And the Minneapolis protesters, a la George Floyd, are seeing some kind of wins here, right? The Minneapolis protesters have been calling to defund the police. We saw student demands at the University of Minnesota that led to the announcement from the university president that they'll sever some ties to Minneapolis PD. The Minneapolis school board severed their ties with the police department, so did Parks and Rec. And so, you know, I think these kinds of alternatives to expansive police authority are are the right move to honor George Floyd's memory. Man, can I can I can I jump in real quick and say something? Because I think it's fabulous. Um, The Kerner Commission, we always bring that up, right? But the the following part is that they they dropped the ball on that, right? Like LBJ, and they they just didn't want anything to do with it. And that's kind of like why we're partly why we're in this place, right? It's one of those things you brought up when you're naming forty three, the Detroit riot. You're talking about riots in the sixties, talking South Central. So we've been here. And every time we've decided not to do anything about it, right? And I think that's what always stands out uh, to me, right? When we have these conversations or, you know, how, like you said, people are trying to compare the 1919 or 1968. I think there's a new piece coming out in 1992. It's like we've been here a number of times and each time we've dropped the ball. I, I, I think that's a excellent point right we we've 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 had this discussion before as i think as carl's point about all the kind of protests that erupted from police harassment as well as from uh police brutality right that come over from from the 60s uh on um i want to i want to bring hassan in here right because hassan is the author of bloody lounge uh which looks at uh the civil rights and black power in Alabama's black belt. And one of the, 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 the key concepts that Hassan has introduced to the historical world that uh, I know I stole and uh, cited in my book and my books um, is this <laughs> notion of freedom rights. And, and he's done this. And I think it's an important way to think about because one of the things, and I'll let Hassan come into that I think is important is that he really kind of, he straddles his work in Alabama straddles that line between looking at both civil rights and black power as this moment, right. That the ideas that we are grappling with. Right. And so I think we see this in the contemporary moment where people like, we like peaceful protests, but we don't like rioting. Right. In the sense that we've making this distinction between an assumption, uh, uh, an appropriate kind of uh, protests with inappropriate. And, and so Hassan's got a new work that he's uh, working on looking at, at looking at Brooklyn, right? Uh, Black working class life in post-civil rights New York. And I think this is a good opportunity for him to kind of tie all these issues together for us um, like a Buckeye can. There we go. So, I mean, one of the things that immediately leaps to mind, um, listening to Carl, listening to what you had just said as well, Derek, is that Black folk have always been battling the police, as long as there have been police forces in the United States, the modern police, black folk have been brutalized by them and have been battling with them. But it's also important to point out that because we live in such a segregated world and it's become even more segregated, that police 
are really representatives are, are, are the point of contact for the state. So those those points of you know sort of police brutality and those triggering events, those precipitating events, are really just sort of flashpoints. And so people are obviously upset over these murders, these individual murders, but they're equally upset over the continuing death wrought by racial inequality and discrimination perpetuated and maintained in part, in large part by the state. And so it's always been, whether it's from the moment of emancipation through the 50s and 60s through the present, these flashpoints, these moments when Black folk take to the streets have always been about more than the particular moment. The egregious incident, absolutely. Justice for those who have lost their lives, absolutely. But it's always been about, like you were saying, sort of this broader agenda, this freedom agenda, not just the individual rights, but the rights, civil and human, for the broader community. I will say, though, this, that this is a unique moment that we're in. Now, I don't know what will come of it, but I I am hard pressed to think of another time where you have had this many white people take to the streets (laughs) take up the language, take up the chants that Black folk have been calling for. Now, in, in, in neighborhoods and communities, I mean, here in Columbus, Ohio, you know, Columbus is, you know, 10% African-American, but you, it's surrounded. And Derek, you may remember this from your days. It's surrounded by a ring of white suburbs. And you have mm-hmm. protests in those suburbs now, led by white folk, mm-hmm. suburbs that are 95% white. And I'm like, what the hell's going on out there? So again, <laughs> I don't know what this will lead to, but I think it's important to put that there's something qualitatively different about this moment. It could be Trump, you know, because it's not just the loss of another dead person, another another brother, right? I mean, because we see that mm-hmm. time and time again. Now, it, it makes it, I mean, it, there is something powerful about it being captured in this particular way, in this particular moment, in this fashion, but we've seen it before and then stacked on top of one after the other. But there's but but there's something else going on here as well. Uh, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because I think one of the things that's most interesting as a historian historian is that this is happening in all 50 states, and we have not seen a situation where I mean we've we've seen protests in Wyoming, in Idaho, the Dakotas, right? And black folks aren't leading those protests. Right. Like like you said, not just in the suburbs of cities, but we're talking about places where black folks are not even really highly representative. Right. right? And I think that that to me is speaking to this broader and I think more important uh, uh, concept. I'm going to shout my brother out who gave me this idea. He's also says that, you know, one of the things that I think that makes this more poignant is that we're in this unique moment in American history where we have no distractions. We have been quarantined in the house for eight to 12 weeks. Um, We have no sports to distract us. Um, We've all watched Tiger King on Netflix. Um, You know, like we're, you know, last dance, you know, last dance is over. Um, And at some point we, we, this moment, right. This murder and, and this filming, like you said, it's not unusual. We had others on tape and it did not, create this kind of uh, multiracial interest. But there is something to be said about this particular moment that like uh, whites in these various cities have come and participated. Um, I'm also, we should acknowledge that, that, and I think Carl could come in on this, that there's some of this is, 
is, I believe, state agents, you know, undermine trying to undermine the movement. I think some of this is uh, uh, right wing provocateurs as well as uh, left wing, um, you know, uh, folks who are seeing this as an opportunity to to escalate beyond some of the peaceful protests. And we've seen that in a lot of videos where folks, black folks who are like, yo, we're not trying to do all that. <laughs> um, but this is an interesting moment, right, that we've got as, as historians and as, as uh, uh, that we should know. And I think this yeah. is, is, oh, go ahead. Oh, is this, oh, who was going? Hey, let me just say something real quick and then I'll hop back out. What's interesting, I had this conversation with, I, I tweeted it out, like my white neighbor stopped me. I was trying to wipe my, my, my post-COVID puppy and my white neighbor stops me and he gets this look on his face and you know, he goes into the speech. How you doing? I was like, oh, shit. Here's, oh, shoot. Here's the coming. Uh, it's ready PG. Uh, but then he talks about this. And and I did, you know, what, what Hassan said. I told him, I said, this feels different. Um, and I tweeted that out. And and what I also didn't didn't mention was like, but I did get, um, was that there's this cautionary tale, right? That that we've seen white folks in the movement before, right? We've seen white folks in SNCC. We've seen them, obviously, in CORE and four. And, and I think it's powerful having civil rights historians on here because there's a they could tell us about this cautionary tale is that you know white people have died they've been in this movement but eventually snick goes black power right like eventually those 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 bonds like fizzle away right and that's because if i um white people in the movement try to control the movement right and so if this is going to be different, that's has to be different, right? So it's one thing to have like a 90% white protest, but then when it comes time to lead, there's they're still gonna have to get out and, the way. And I would say you're absolutely right. But I was and this is where I'm saying I'm I'm just trying to pay attention and hear because it, rhetorically, you're hearing some of that. I mean, you're hearing them saying, I mean, when you have white folk yelling, you never had a time, you know, during the height of the sixties, because when we got to black power. They stop. They bail. Black lives. Right. It's like, I'm going to Don't mention Chicago. Black, right? Right. This is about you. So it's like, oh, when you see white folk ch- ch- chanting that, it's like, okay. Right. And I would also say this. There's something that I've also noticed something different, too. And it's about the media. And I think the media has been conditioned in a mainstream media in a different way. Basically, CNN and MSNBC in a different way because of the constant barrage of lies coming from Trump, right? That their coverage of the protests is different. Now, there's still the images still the same. You get somebody breaking a glass, they're going to shine a light over there. But they're making, I mean, if you just listen to them, they're not falling for everybody's a looter, everybody's a rioter, right? I mean, they were making hard distinctions of the two. That's also different because the the you know, white consumers of that can't default back to it's just a matter of law and order, especially when you have counter narratives of people filming police attacking these demonstrators and wiling out and they can't cover it up. I think that's also making a difference, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, I, you know, to that point, right, I, I feel like I was having a conversation with my parents recently. And, um, you know, and I've, I've been out twice now here in Atlanta. You know, I went out once in Atlanta. And then once in Decatur, right? And, and 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 as one may imagine, right, Decatur being, you know, quote unquote suburb of, 
of Atlanta, right? They they were drastically different audience, you know, like people present, right? The one the one here in Decatur had to be, you know, roughly if I had to guess, it, it was probably eighty percent white. Um, like no exaggeration, like four out of every five people. Um, and you know, again, I you know, so to that point, I think it's important for white people to want to fight white supremacy and black folks have been doing it for centuries. And, you know, there have always been kind of these calls for white allies. Um, To me, what's interesting, and this isn't necessarily new, right? Historians know that this language isn't new, but to see the language and the discourse employed by white people on the ground of anti-racism here has actually been somewhat exciting to me, right? Like, like some some of the best fights I've been watching on social media have been, you know, some of my white friends white fighting with their white friends um, and having really difficult conversations. And they weren't having these eight years ago with Trayvon Martin, right? They weren't having these six years ago with Michael Brown. They weren't having, you know, like, this is even something new for even this contemporary moment. And, you know, and, and, and I think there's something to be said about that, you know, whether it's the media coverage, whether it's, you know, COVID got us spent up in the house and people are using this as an excuse just to get outside because outside been taken from us for so long. Right. But, um, you know, but, but there is, I, I agree that there's something different about the reception, about the acts, um, that we are seeing from white folks right now and, um, you know, how much we trust it and how far it goes, you know, that's, I think that's a whole nother podcast. I, I, I want to chime in here in part, because I think that there's something like, uh, to kind of summarize what you guys have said and it is, is really thinking about how, um, Carl, your last point about how people, especially, uh, a particular, a uh, white segment of the population was frustrated with being quarantined and they got their guns and they stormed subway and they stormed state houses. And the thing that was really striking about uh, many of those images that were in the newspaper that many people saw because they were in their homes because there was nothing else on is that the police did not have riot gear on, you know, like they were not prepared for, you know, they didn't have the tanks out in in a way that we we know from experience and what we saw that you know when folks are saying hey we're going to do a protest uh to to challenge this this police brutality this murder uh along with this broader kind of as 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 I'm pointing out this broader kind of uh protest against uh the state um we get, you know, police, we get SWAT teams, we got unnamed police, we've got helmets, we've got shields, we got everything, tear gas and rubber bullets and everything that we've seen. And so it's a really stark, almost immediate response that people's, you know, black folks have been saying, like, there's differential policing. And now the evidence is there uh, that you have seen and paid attention to because there's nothing else on in the last, you know, month and a half or two months or whatever we've been locked in. Uh, and this really kind of moves us into, I think this is moves us into kind of lose territory, right? Because one of the things that I we talk about on this podcast is kind of how the sports world is reacting to some of these issues. And, you know, 
we looked and we, you know, we, we did a little quick survey before and, you know, we don't remember the, you know, the sports world coming out um, and having a lot to say uh, vis-a-vis the LA riots. Mm. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> like, like we didn't expect. The white sports world, right. Right, the like, white sports world. I mean, like, right, you know, yeah. particular athletes said something, but I'm saying, like, teams, leagues, right. you know, hockey didn't come out and be like, you know, it was a tragedy what happened in the Rodney King case. Like, we didn't see, even if it's just a PR kind of um, cottage industry, we didn't see that. And so I think that's interesting. And, Lou, I want you to kind of think about, like, this long scope of, of whether 68 in Detroit or 67 in Detroit through the L.A. riots to even Ferguson, like, We've seen this this ebb and flow from things, but this is this the the totality of the response feels different. No, you're right. It, it feels different. Um, so examples I was going through just to to try to look up. So 64, the North Philly riots, right, which are right where um, the Phillies used to play before they moved to Veteran Stadium. You don't. I couldn't find anything from the press. Um, Detroit Tigers in '67. Uh, didn't find anything. Um, 68 after MLK's assassination. What's interesting is you'll see a little bit more because the whole sports world had to shut down. It's kind of like today. I mean, today the sports world shut down because of pandemic, but the sports world shut down after MLK's, um, assassination. And you do see some things from the, the, um, the Browns, the Indians and American league. Um, but it's just like, it's not like a deep look at it. It's just like, you know, MLK was a great man. We need to honor his funeral, right? They just couldn't play on that day. Uh, but what you'll see is always what you kind of see today um, without the white players, but it, it's, you'd see the, the black players having to step up, right? It's it's what do you think Willie Horton, right? Um, if, we're, if we're looking, not that Willie Horton, by the way, Willie Horton used to play for the Tigers. Um, or if you look at the, the 92 riots, you know, with, with the Los Angeles Dodgers, it's Tommy Lasorda wants to just get back to baseball. And yet Eric Davis and Daryl Strawberry, right? The great Eric Davis, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, who, who are, they're from LA, right? And, and all of a sudden there's a, there's this, the South Central riots in their neighborhood, right? They have to become the spokesperson for it. Or Byron Scott with the Lakers. If you if you watch Shut Up and Dribble, um, he's on there trying to talk about like what he had to deal with in that moment where their playoff game gets moved to Las Vegas. Uh, but there's nothing major from the from the Lakers. There's nothing major from the Kings, right? Uh, the, the Los Angeles Kings. So that's why this this feels different. And I think part of why it feels different is because one to two teams stepped up. And then the others had to follow. It's the same thing we see with like players making statements. It's, and this is what I try to explain to people when we talk about athletes getting involved, right? We've seen tons of athletes, black athletes out there protesting. What I explain to people is that once a few people do it, you're no longer isolated, right? You're no longer that, that lone figure and everyone can knock down, right, about your politics or anything like that, right? If there's a bunch of numbers, you feel comfortable. And I think that's what you're seeing see, uh, seeing happening, right? You you see one team does it, another team does it, and then the next team. And so now all of a sudden, you're not alone. But I think the problem in this, and, and this is why we're getting such bad statements, is that people, there are some people or some teams out there just putting out that statement just to put out that statement, right? Not to look bad. Well, 
you know, I, I want to, you know, one of the great things about having Carl and Hassan is that we we know they are both uh, extraordinary, uh, not only historians, but sports fans and, and, and they're tuned to the sports world and both at the collegiate and professional uh, level. Uh, Hassan, are, are, I, are you still a Knicks fan? Do I have to publicly state that? Ooh. Ooh. Uh, oh. I mean, I'm just saying, I don't know. I'm just I mean, checking. That's cold, man. That's just cold. Yes, yes. John Stark. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, all right. Uh, John Starks. Okay, my bad. I know that last dance was traumatic. Um, uh, but one of the things that's interesting is that, like, you know, as as, as um, Lou points out, like, we've got this, everybody's putting out, but one of the things in this moment, right, with social media, as just as social media has been able to shine this kind of bright, re- this bright light on policing and the violence of policing it's also shined this bright light on the hypocrisy surrounding professional sports and collegiate sports right that we get this this hypocrisy in the sense that um most notably now everybody's got to ask their opinion right because we've always asked lebron or kareem or michael jordan what they thought about these political issues now the microphone is being thrust in front of these white athletes right because this movement has now got what more white participation so what does drew Brees think what do what does you know aaron Rodgers think what does tom brady think right like that what is what are these uh, these white quarterbacks who are in many ways the uh, images, uh, the 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 spokesperson for the NFL. Uh, what do these white coaches who would prefer to not talk but anything about wins and losses and the next opponent? What do they think as they are uh, managing? You know, football rosters full. You know, with seventy percent of their players are African American. Uh, and same for basketball coaches, right? And so what we've seen is a lot of fumbling, right? We've seen a lot of people mess up, uh, uh, may- maybe tell their true feelings, but now expose the lie that sports is somehow this bomb that brings unity. Uh, most notably, uh, this in the last couple of days, we saw Drew Brees uh, come out as many people had pointed out that Colin Kaepernick's uh, peaceful protest, which got him ultimately blackballed from the NFL, was correct. And then Drew Brees doubles down, right? And so what do we see? And so, um, Hassan, I want to hear from you a little bit here, is is really thinking about, like, how do we see this both at the professional and collegiate level as part of this other kind of, whether it's the civil rights movement uh, and how this reflects kind of, uh, as we're paying attention to some of these kind of uh, nuances. I think that, one of the things that you always uh, have to look for time. is space. Like what space has been created for people to step into and speak up. And, and so Lou, you were pointing out sort of, you know, who was saying what and when and who wasn't. And I think about this, the Trump moment is really important, right? So prior to any of this, if you, if you think about just Steve Kerr and, and, and coach Popovich, right, they have been making statements about, sort of critical about Donald Trump that you would not hear like co- head coaches talking about a sitting president before. And so I think that created and has created some space both for head coaches and for organizations and for players and athletes to sort of move in and give voice in a way that they may not have done before. Mm. Car, car. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, and to that point, 
I think a lot about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never the, never the old guy in the room, but I'm old enough to remember when, um, ESPN analysts in particular were being let go for speaking too politically. And now in this moment where there are no games on TV, they all <laughs> seem to have a conversation, right? And so I think it speaks to one of Lou's earlier points, um, really, about, or not Lou, uh, maybe it wasn't Lou's point, but uh, to the earlier damn, point just about- give me credit, I, man. My bad, my bad, Lou, I call myself. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, one of the earlier points about like, you know, there's nothing on TV, right? There's nothing to watch right now. And if there were games being played right now, would it still be the same response from the sports world? Is the sheer lack of actual game footage, give it, has that provided a space for ESPN analysts to now come back and have these conversations, right? Because whether we're talking about like Dominique Foxworth, whether we're talking about, um, Al Duncan, who had a pretty tough conversation, Michael Eads, right? When we did, well, yeah, the numbers on ESPN of black analysts are, you know, continuing to dwindle, and the ones who are there are still utilizing their platform. Um, but right now, they're given the space to do so. And I think a part of it, or something that can't be ignored, is that if there were games on right now, would that response from the sports world be the same? You know, because that, I, I find it hard to think if we're in the midst of an NBA playoffs right now that people would still be utilizing the sports platform, what be it ESPN, be it certain players, I actually players, think, right? if, if I could um, jump in, in same kind of I actually way. think there's also something important about the fact that there are no sports being played right now, that it actually eliminates the usual, the, 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 the normative critique, right? It says, you know, it's to shut up and dribble. So if you're a basketball player, right, and you're in the midst of the NBA playoffs and somebody sticks a microphone in your, in your face, the criticism then automatically comes. Well, you just need to be focusing on the game, right? So that either that 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 can both silence by undermining what the person has to say, or give a person an out, right? Who's like, well, I don't really want to comment. I just want to focus on the game. And that also, if we were still if we were still in the midst of the, the of the annual sports cycle, you would the, the attention would be on the players who were playing. And not on those who are in their off season, and so now it's sort of everyone's on the same playing on, on the same level. So you can go to anybody. I mean, a football player is just as important in terms of their voice and comment what they might have to say as a baseball player or a basketball player right now. So I think that also shifts the shifts the playing field, if you will, in terms of you know sort of people's interest. And then lastly, I also think it's in, the, the impact of not not having sports right now also means that people who are not athletes and athletes are usually the people who get the microphone they're actually taking sort of center stage in a different way right than we norm than we would have i think if athletes were actually playing in in in, in real time right um if i could jump in the other thing i'm gonna add to that because those are perfect is that so much about sports that we use it is is kind of to shut things up or to bring people together, right? And so the narrative about sports, whether it's post Katrina or post nine eleven, or or even if there's something going on in the city, is that sports brings us together, right? And now all of a sudden that narrative is not there. So so the sporting world has been exposed because as as Hassan says, everybody's doing nothing 
Um, and so there's no game to turn to. There's no, let's watch the Lakers and Bucks in the finals and we'll all feel, feel good about it. The other part, I think, if there's sports being played, nobody can get mad that their sport's not on, right? And so let's say the the Floyd, it happens, and then there's there's disruption across the country, right? There's protests across the country. That would have shut down some games, right? Right. We saw, what was it, last year or two years ago, the Kings, uh, the Sacramento Kings game got shut down because of protests, right? So, so and then people get mad at the protests, right? So Because you can't go watch the game. All that's taken off the, the table. So there's nobody mad that they can't go see the Minnesota Twins play, right? There's nobody mad that they can't see the Baltimore Orioles play or or wh- whatever's going on because no one's playing. And I think that's given more people and opportunity, too, more that, athletes and opportunity nobody to step cares in. cares that the Knicks aren't playing, but that's a separate story. <laughs> can we also add that the Knicks didn't even make the post-COVID tournament, right? They're just they're just done. They're not top. They're not top twenty-two. They're just waiting for one of the the Ball brothers to draft. So that's that's where they're at now. Oh my goodness! Can, can, I want to shift gears just real quick uh, to to the college realm because we a lot of this sports discussion has focused on the on the professional sports. And one of the things that's happened over the last, I want to say, you know, five or seven years is you know. That is, is that we have paid as scholars, but also in the broader public, paid more attention about the exploitation of, of college athletes, especially in uh, men and women's basketball and college football as the revenue generating sports uh, for these uh, elite institutions like Ohio State and the University of Kentucky. Uh, Emory's probably excluded from this conversation. Sorry, Carl. Uh, Grand Rapids uh, at the division. What are you guys? Division two? It's, we're talking about it's Grand Valley State, and we're like the best division two program <laughs> oh, in all of sports. We're like the Ohio State of Division two. Right? My bad. Yeah. And, and you guys uh, fired your your Hitler loving coach. Is that what happened? Oh gosh, yeah. He's uh, yeah. He's getting he's getting his money next year though. Um, Professors aren't getting raises. So go ahead. <laughs> But one of the things is we've had this discussion, I think, has been thinking about this nature of exploitation and the racial dimensions of it, uh, in which we have an overwhelming number of white coaches and black players forming the kind of labor, right, this uncompensated labor. And so one of the things that we've had at this collegiate level is this interesting kind of twofold thing happening, right? We've got the protest around George Floyd, but we also have this pandemic, right? And as we and, you know, in our pre-op, pre-show thing, we are all discussing about where we are about going back as professors for the fall. And one of the things we all acknowledge is like how important sports is that our school is going to shape this issue. And one of the things that I think that has also happened in this moment is that college athletes, uh, in particular black college athletes who have been subjected to these uh, uh aggressive racialized policing uh, as teenagers and as college uh, as college students as well have forced this conversation and put their white coaches in this awkward position right and so what are these coaches now who are the highest paid you know persons in their state uh, what are they going to say and how are they going to say it is not only a, a matter of managing their locker room in this immediate moment right and really acknowledging the kind of uh, the the uh, experiences of their black players, but it also is a recruiting tool, right? Like there's something else that if you mess this up, 
there are going to be real live kind of recruiting ramifications. Like how is you as a parent going to be like, I'm not going to send my kid to this coach because he can't even get this statement right. Right. Like this is a real live kind of thing. And so Hassan's at Ohio state. And so I want to, you know, hear your thoughts about this a little bit well, initially. And I then, was actually, I was actually um, <laughs> surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised that there was a video and you may, you can, you can Google it. It will show up. Um, put out by the uh, OSU football team. And it's black players, white players, um, star players, um, bench, you know, the non-star bench players talking about the uh, systemic racism, racial violence, racial terror, the need to overcome it in very explicit language that ends with Ryan Day, the head coach. And there have been a number of statements by OSU um, coaches um, that, you know, that they've put out on, you know, social media and the like, just taking the football team, you know, two years ago, that's not happening under the previous head coach under Urban Meyer. I mean, mm. th- th- there has been, so, so part of it, I mean, like, like you were saying, Derek, about the head coach, a lot of this stems from the amount of room that the head coach is willing to give to their student athletes and, and how they perceive it. Now, it was both Urban Meyer and Shelly Meyer, too. They had a different set of politics that really clamped down on the freedom of expression right. of these young people. Now, they would say things like, oh, you know, they can do what they want to do. With that. But if you know, if you, saying one thing and signaling something else, you know, mm-hmm. these, young, these young boys and young, and young women, they understand what the message is. And so I think you're right. You know, athletes, parents are watching and they're listening. And, and, and they're going to be making decisions in part on that going forward. So it was I was I was I was glad that they made at minimum this kind of statement. Now, you do want to see these statements translate into um, changes in policy, efforts to improve graduation rates and the like, increasing resources, programming, post-graduation support and, and all of that. You want to see that be uh, um, uh, racially explicit in terms of uh, resources and policy. But again, it's still important to have the statements. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I was thinking too a lot about what you were saying there and what this means for young people in particular, if we're thinking about it from a recruitment standpoint. You know, Mikey Williams, the 15-year-old basketball player, sent out that eight-word tweet, going to an HBCU wouldn't be too bad. And some folks gave him some slack, but others, um, you know, he followed up on it on an Instagram post where he wrote, you know, if you're a pro, you're a pro, no matter which college you go to, and that he's writing, you know, he said something like, I'm 10 toes behind the black community. He said, any way I can help or make a change in the black community, best believe I'm going to do that. And so I think, you know, even the players who aren't in college yet are looking at the silences of certain coaches, the statements by others. And um, and I think it's been pretty important to watch, to follow. Lou? Oh, yeah. Um, that's I saw that. Um, I saw that tweet, um, and I was just like, um, that reminded me of $40 million slaves, right? 
uh, from William Roden, who, who talked about this, right? This idea of black athletes going to uh, HBCUs. Um, but one of the things that I, that I wanted to say too about this is that white coaches have had a um, a break for fifty years, right? And and of of um, having to deal with the, their black athletes, right? And having to to deal with um, their black athletes expressing themselves about these subjects. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the late 1960s, um, you have more than 30 protests, right? Uh, from black athletes, boycotts, college athletes about these very issues that some of these athletes are discussing. And the result of that was some white coaches kicked their players off the team, Wyoming, Syracuse, uh, Indiana, Iowa, Washington, all the black players got kicked off the teams. But you also saw when we, Derek and I talked about this in a, in another podcast is that you, you had um, black coaches hired, and it gets back to the point about Derek was making. It, it all came about recruiting, right? And so some of these statements, I, I hate to be cynical, it, are about recruiting. Um, and if you drop the bag like Florida State coach just did, uh, you're you're gonna feel ramifications from that. There, it's it's not even clear that that guy will even have a job in fall, right? Just because of how bad this blowback is gonna be, because his team's his that Florida State team's got to be at least seventy percent black, right? All yeah. that top talent, and so now he has to think about these things. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think there's I, I want to jump in here and talk about a couple of these things. Right. Like, I think one, you this recruiting angle is is extremely important. Um, and I think uh, this is not only about the present locker room, but it's always about the future locker room. This is the way college coaches always think. They're always thinking, you know, two classes ahead. Um, and, you know, how does one recruit uh, when you can't get a statement? How do you go into this room? Uh, this, you know, these parents limited room, which is what, you know, an integral part of the recruiting process, right? You show up in some parents, you know, some guardian parent or guardian's living room and you explain to them that you're going to take care of their son or daughter. And that's going to be hard to believe now that I've got evidence of your kind of uh, hollow statements, right? Um, I think that's part of it. Um, the other piece is, I think, uh, one of the things that we've, one of the things that this event did is it exposed the coaches who are the least racially adept. And one of the things I'm thinking of is uh, most notably Dabo Sweeney at Clemson uh, talked about how, you know, he just going to go to God and, you know, we pray for love and unity. Uh, And then, and then the very next day it comes out that uh, because his players and former players are looking at these statements uh, and they're like, you know, you let one of the assistant coaches, call another player the n-word and uh didn't apologize didn't have to uh, didn't apologize to the team and left it unaddressed and he kept his job right and so like this becomes a a a huge um uh chink in the armor that has become really this kind of clemson story that has risen in part on black labor and black quarterbacks deshaun watson is the kind of key catalyst to starting this um and so going forward, we're, we're going to, I think, going to really uh, have, we have evidence, right, and coaches. And, and I'll talk about my alma mater, Mike Loxley, uh, at the University of Maryland, who is a D.C. native. And one of the things I was really most impressed with was that they didn't put out a statement. They put out an action plan that they had intended on uh, going in surrounding communities and helping people to register to vote. Uh, 
They had um, they already had a relationship with several local elementary schools, but they reaffirmed their relationship with working with black youth in these communities. And, and you know, that maybe seems superficial, but given that these kids are taking a full academic load from professors like us uh, and working 40 hours a week as athletes, the fact that they are taking this on as an action set of action items it was far more impressive uh, than other coaches who were talking about that this is a travesty uh, and, you know, we hope that we can come together in unity, right? Like, I mean, I think there's something to be said. Uh, and if I can that. jump in real quick, too, I think um, thinking, you know, on, on that point about Hassan has me thinking about space in a million different ways right now. But, um, you know, I, I think what UCLA did with the Jackie Robinson Stadium, right, and and what what kind of protest that has now you know, thinking about tying college athletes and college athletic spaces um, to the direct moment or the direct the content from the direct moment, um, you know, it's. I, I think it's 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 also clear for these institutions beyond the coaches, right, to make make clear that 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 they're invested in the the success of their black students, whether we're talking black players or or you know other black students right and you know i think this is that was in one instance in which we see a space that's employed largely by black athletes on campus at UCLA not to mention being named after Jackie Robinson um but you know i think i think you know how UCLA responds to that is going to be incredibly important um for what they think about how public education facilities will end up being used Hassan, no, that's that's. Oh, I was gonna say that's a perfect point. And and real quick before, um, we talk about the Jackie Robinson Stadium. Jackie Robinson, we talk about that black athlete. He's the first black athlete I've seen to actually publicly talk about police brutality, right? And the first time he does this, we've mentioned this before on the pod, is is that Hewitt Commission, right? Where where unfortunately he has to go after Paul Robinson, but he he takes that opportunity to also denounce, you know, Jim Crow, denounce police brutality. And from that moment on, there there are several times where he's he's using his platform to denounce police brutality. So so to have Jackie Robinson Stadium be a place where where that type of brutality continues um, is very problematic. I want to I want to come back to this earlier point that Carl made, and I want to hear Hassan's thoughts on this because he's a Morehouse grad. Um, as is, is that there is there, when these events happen and these coaches, you know, fall short of what they could say, uh, and probably should say, there is a tremendous amount of, um, uh, attention, uh, suggesting that these elite athletes need to come home. That's what, that's what, uh, Jelani, one of our good friends, one of your students, one of my good friends says all the time, it's time for you to come home, right? Uh, meaning that they should come back to HBCUs. Um, and so I think you could think about this on both sides as a, as a Morehouse alum and now at one of the kind of most powerful Division I uh, uh, athletic programs working at that institution. What are the challenges uh, about getting resources, um, black students, it, it, black elite it, it, it athletes? It simply comes to, down to, to that. Come back to HBCUs. When you, when you compare, uh, not just, we usually see, you know, the outside, the, the average spectator, just sees what happens on Saturdays, right? What's just sees what, what happens on game day on the field on the hardwood. You don't see the millions of dollars 
that are poured into facilities, that are poured into sports performance. I mean, it is, these are professional training spaces, period, that you have at these top division one schools. I mean, when you look at the resources that Ohio State has in every sport, forget about, I mean, we're talking about, you know, lacrosse, right? Never mind football. I mean, the football training facility is state of the art, not just the practice, but then also the sports performance, the sports health. There is no black college that could even compare. I mean, not even come close to what Ohio State tears down to make way for what the new facilities that they put up. And so at a basic level, you know, just what you can get, forget about everything, forget about the academics, forget about the social stuff, just what you can get in terms of preparation for the next level is is, is not, it, it can't be compared. That's one thing. But then the other thing too, and but this could change, like that's not going to change because black cars ain't got no money. So that's not changing. But what could change and this is important, is, um, you know, (laughs) what kind of media attention can you get? So the, you know, there was a moment where you, the only, you know, by the time you come out of the 60s and you're into the 1970s and you start, you're starting to get sort of, you know, network television and these broadcasts, you know, you, you had to go to certain places to really get that spotlight. But now as we are beginning to, to reimagine and reconceptualize media. And, you know, I mean, the big media players aren't just networks. They're also, you know, the, the, you know, internet, right. Then if that changes in some way, shape or form, then you might see the more people possibly heading to black colleges for a broader experience. But as long as you have a lock on exposure through the major uh, uh, D one schools, and as, and especially as long as you got a lock on of facilities and resources, there's really no going back to the days of old. Um, I, you know, me and Lou, I, you know, me and Lou teach sports history pretty regularly. I don't know if Hassan does and Carl, Carl does as well. But I, one of the examples I've always used in my class to kind of get students to think about the, the resource question, right? Because it's hard, like you said, most people can't imagine it if they've never really, like they could go to college and not really fully see the resource advantages that uh, a school like Ohio State has over a school like Maryland even, right? I mean, it's just night and day. And the example I always use is that I want to say in the early 2000s, uh, Ohio State started women's hockey uh, and they had had men's hockey and they bought 25 uh, ice treadmills, which are basically wow. like treadmills. I don't know what that is. Right. It's like a treadmill. You get, it's a contraption. You get a, like, you get strung in and you skate. And it functions like a treadmill. Like you would do if you were running, right? You just skate. Each one of those things costs like $30,000. Ohio state had 25 of them. Right. Um, they had enough for both men's and women's hockey. Right. And the entire NHL only had 10. Oh my gosh! Right, Is Ohio like, State any good at hockey? Right? No, no. Like we're not even a major. Like it's not even that they were like national contenders, right? We're not like you know we're not Michigan, we're not Minnesota, we're not like 
any of those elite programs, right? It didn't, it didn't matter. It's that, that we were, you know, resources that we, when you have to spend the money every year. And so it was like, what are we going to spend it on this the, year? The, let's the, buy, we got hockey. Let's, let's buy these ice hockey treadmills. Um, wow. And I pull, yeah, I pull up a video because they don't know what it is, and it shows it, and they're like, the, the, "This the is budget, crazy! Like, why would you need that?" And I'm like, "Because we have ice time." But Ohio like, State athletics is two hundred twenty million dollars. That's more than most black colleges budget for the whole budget. Godly like, by factors, by several factors, right? So it's not even comparable Entire in terms budget. of what you can put in, and <laughs> right. that's enticing. Right. That's real. Right. I, I was going to say, like, in comparison, I was at I was at Grambling a couple of years ago. And it's like, it's the first time going there. You can't believe how small it is. But all that talent came out of that, right? But in comparing it to Ohio State having 25 ice treadmills, I mean, think about this. Um, Grambling is one of the few schools that's had a protest uh, from, from, their, from their student athletes. And I believe they're protesting like lack of nutritionist like food, right? I think it was like chocolate milk or something like that. Um, and so that's that comparison, right? This big power five school has all the resources, $220 million. And at this HBCU school, this historical school that, that I believe probably to this day has more and at one point had more NFL players in Ohio State. I'm sure those numbers have changed. Yeah, is is protesting over like chocolate milk or something like that, right? And so if yeah. you're a student athlete, you have to you have to think about that. You have to think about the lack of perhaps quarterback coaches, the lack of specialized coaches, the the lack of strength and, and conditioning coaches, right? Um, but but one of the things we talked about in another podcast, if they're not getting paid, it doesn't matter where they go because it's still <laughs> exploitation. So I had to had to throw that in there because uh, I wouldn't be on brand if I didn't say that, right? If, if you just change it, if, if if Ben Simmons and, and, and add, goes to too, Southern instead to that of, as well, instead of LSU, it. right? And he's it's not also paid, not it's simply a function of black colleges um, just don't know how to compete against you know University of Alabama. It's also stacked against them. I mean, structurally, in terms of TV contracts, you know, I mean, in other words, there are structural obstacles that have made it impossible for historically black colleges to compete, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on a level playing field against these larger institutions, especially when you move beyond, especially in revenue generating sports, but even beyond that. I'll, right. I'll no. Uh, as I said, we talked about this before in another part, right? It was like, so we talked about the TV contracts, right? So NCAA controls TV contracts until 84 and they're not even playing. Uh, they're not even putting black colleges on TV, right? And until then once you get until 78, right? And then once you have the conferences taking over those contracts, all that contracts money is going to the power conferences in Notre Dame. So the black schools, as Hassan says, for if my math is correct, almost 70 years are getting left out of that TV money. Well, I, I mean, let, let me let me put this even a, and make it smaller but bigger at the same time. Like, and I have this conversation with with folks when they make this conversation. I was like, look, the recruit. I worked at Dartmouth for five years. The recruiting budget at Dartmouth is nearly a million dollars a year. Right. At Dartmouth, we don't have scholarships. We're in the Ivy League. We play ten games a year, like for football. Like that's that's what they raise. They ra- that part of that comes from the school. Part of that comes from private uh, donations every year. 
And no black college is coming close to bringing that much money in, in terms of in terms of recruiting. Like North Carolina A and T was excited like two years ago that they crossed a million dollar threshold in fundraising, and they're the and you know and they're the, like the best HBCU. And so I think when we think about resources, this is just such a depth thing. And then so yeah, I would love to see more athletes come because I think Hassan can, would would definitely speak to this as well. Like the experience that you get at HBCU is not comparable to the experience that you would get at uh, uh, at Ohio State or Kentucky. Uh, and I think that that's an important piece, right? But at the same time, these kids are making business decisions. Many of them, especially elites, are trying to get to the next level, uh, and and they're doing that. Um, before we wrap up, I want to have Carl and Hassan say kind of last words. Where do you see us going in the next week, two weeks, mo- two months regarding sports and and this protest and COVID? You know, I got you here, so I want to. Yeah, I'm going to make you do some future yeah. predictions. All right. So I'll um, you're a historian. I'll say this. I think. Um, I was on a few weeks back and we were, you know, at the top of the last dance, you know, filling our empty sports void. And we were, you know, it was a Twitter party for us every Sunday. It was a good time. We fast forward about eight weeks and it seemed like the whole world has, you know, changed dramatically, um, even while living in this pandemic. And so if I had to guess where we're about to go in the next eight weeks, in addition to, you know, the NBA season picking back up in Orlando with 22 teams and the Lakers about to win another championship, even though many of you will put an asterisk totally on unnecessary. it. Um, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I think where I'm, you know, I, where I hope we're headed is to see justice for Ahmaud Arbery here in Georgia, um, which pre-trial started today. Um, So I'm hoping that as athletes continue to use their voice to advocate for what's going on, that we can see, we, we can see some of these things starting to kind of play out. Right. Um, So when athletes are talking about Ahmaud Arbery, they're talking about it in a way that, you know, justice is beginning to be served. Um, we can see athletes who are representing and speaking out on Breonna Taylor, and we can start, you know, whose case got reopened today. Um, we can see justice starting to be served. And obviously, we can, um, the athletes who are speaking out about George Floyd, we can, um, you know, have a little more sense of what it means for justice to be served in you know, I this think particular that instance. I, th- I think we will see um some positive outcomes if 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 justice being served is a positive outcome hopeful there right that we will see some positive outcomes in some individual cases we had talked earlier um in 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 the podcast about this being a sort of unique moment um because of so many white folk um you know taking to the streets in solidarity with african americans on this issue but history tells us that white people will disappoint us. And it's, it's, it's really, and and the question is not whether they will disappoint us because they will. It's just a matter of how much will they disappoint us by? (laughs) Is it going to be a whole lot or is it going to be less than usual? And I think in the end, we don't know what that, what that percentage Mm. is going to be. I'm hope it's less than usual. Uh, But, you know, we know, and we know when this is all over, 
they can default back to their sort of uh, normal status and they can enjoy the privilege of ignoring this. And, and, and that will lead to make, again, us, you know, you know, a, a franchise in perpetual rebuilding mode. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the obstacles are just arrayed against us. So, you know, it, it, I think it's a wait and see. We still have to struggle. We still have to fight. We still have to be in the streets. But I, I, we certainly can't get overjoyed uh, because we got more white folk out there than previously. We got to be prepared for what comes, uh, you know, down the road when things quiet down, when jobs open up, when social distancing regulations are relaxed. You know, I'm, a, you know, as an African-American, I'm all I'm, I'm, I'm part of a hopeful people, but I'm not particularly optimistic. Uh, but that doesn't mean that change isn't on the horizon and that we're not in a moment of, of real possibility. Mm. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate you, man. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have Carl and Hassan on. We've gone over like twice as long, but it's a, it's a pandemic. And so right. people got time. People uh, got time. No. Oh, I, I guarantee you my kids are still up. Yeah, so. uh, mine are asleep, so I'm just saying. You, know. you guys are regimented like, right there. Yeah. <laughs> man, doc- yeah. Uh, I got a doctor. Uh, hey. Peace out. Thank you. (laughs) All right, man. All right. All right. Peace. Peace.